This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The points of what I want to talk about tonight are to describe what digital health is and how it's used in health research. I've been in this area for about seven years now, and it's been really interesting to look at how the ethical dimensions of the research are percolating. They're really new and different. I'm going to show you some of these digital sensors that are being used, how they're being used, and I'll also report some of the findings that we're doing with the research study with artificial intelligence and healthy aging. So with that, the new center here at UC San Diego that I'm directing Um, Dr. Sandra Brown's office gave us some pilot money to get started to develop a center that would really look closely at the ethical dimensions of digital health research. And so we launched that earlier this year, and what we're doing is bringing together all the people in this ecosystem. So we're working with researchers, we're working with participants, we're working with institutions, with ethicists, with legal scholars, and we're working closely with industry, learning more about how the people that are developing the technologies are thinking about the ethical dimensions of what happens when the end user finally gets the product, and is it doing what they think it should do? Is it working for that population that they designed it for? So that is a a program that is... um, housed over at the Qualcomm Institute, and we're working, we have something like 800 network members now involved, and that's just after being around for a short time. Um, So what is digital health? What is digital health research? And what are the ethical, regulatory, and social implications? So this is a a graph that was put together by a new society. And when I talk about digital health, it is a really new area. the Digital Medicine Society, which I'm a scientific advisor on, just was formed in 2019, in June. So the Digital Medicine Society is now bringing together a lot of the people in this network, um, and they've defined digital health and digital medicine and digital therapeutics. And I think it's really important to think about digital health as being the, the larger umbrella, and it could include things like health technologies that you, that you choose to use for lifestyle and wellness. So if you have an Apple Watch, that would be something that's a direct-to-consumer product. Um, they may do research to prove that the, that the technology works in the way it's supposed to work, but they're not under FDA oversight, so they don't claim to have a health product. In, in Apple's case, they do have a few things that are FDA-approved, um, but a lot of the wearable technologies that you might pick up, um, I'm wearing an aura ring that captures my heart rate, heart rate variability, my sleep, my deep sleep, my REM sleep. And this is a direct-to-consumer product. I have no idea how well it's been tested. Um, so they're not required to do research to show proof that it works. So that kind of is this digital health sector that is about lifestyle and wellness Um, It's similar to how you might choose to use a product that you would buy at CVS that claims to do something to improve your your health. A lot of those products aren't FDA regulated because they don't claim to be a medical product or clinically relevant. If you go over into digital medicine, these are products that have to have clinical evidence in order to be used in clinical care. And then you have digital therapeutic products, which are delivering evidence-based therapeutic interventions to prevent, manage, or treat a medical disorder or disease. 
These require clinical evidence and real-world evidence in order to be um, put into production into our healthcare system. So that's just a, a quick overview of there are different things that are going on under this umbrella of digital health. So what I have been doing over the past you know, many years is thinking about, well, I'm in the division of behavioral medicine and family medicine and public health. And so working with behavioral scientists, we tend to try to figure out how do we prevent disease? How do we look at health behaviors that are impacting like, things like physical activity, diet, tobacco use? A lot of folks have put so much time and effort into genetics and thinking that genetics is the answer to everything. But in reality, your lifestyle and your environment are influencing 40% of the variance. So it's, it's really important that we are able to look at environmental factors, your social circumstances, healthcare utilization and delivery. And now that we have all of these different types of data, we can predict the flu based on, on tweets. So existing public data, whether it is on Facebook, Facebook now, and I'll show you a slide in a little bit, has algorithms that are predicting suicidality. So these are sources of data that have never been able to be harnessed before and analyzed in ways that we can really understand what's happening in an individual's everyday life. So tools used to capture personal data are pervasive and ubiquitous. There are several different types of tools. I'll go over a few of them. So your, your smartphone is one that's used quite a bit in research that we call mobile health or digital health research. In some cases, it's used to deploy a survey, which is trying to capture what you're doing in the moment. So instead of having you come into a research lab and answer questions about what you did two weeks ago and have to rely on self-report, they can, they can deploy a survey to you on your smartphone. You answer several questions. That is real-time reporting of how you feel, whether you've been active, whether, you know, whatever the questions happen to be. Um, it's also being used to predict mental health. And so there are, there are programs out that take over your smartphone keyboard, and they're now using your key movements as a signature and then looking to see how your, your kinematics change over time and making assessments of whether or not you have a disorder. So I'll give you some more examples of those in, in just a minute. One of them, though, is a, is a pretty big one. Um, it's, a, it's an app that has been deployed in, in four counties in California that is, is being used in county public mental health to predict mental health wellness and or disease. And this is um, something that hasn't been well tested. And so deploying it in our public health system might cause questions to be asked. Um, we've written a paper recently on the kinds of questions that municipalities should be asking when they're making choices about what type of artificial intelligent products they're planning to insert into their systems. Oftentimes people don't know what kind of questions to ask and they just tend to trust that if something is available to the public, it must have been tested. 
So this is another device that my colleagues had been using when I got here at UC San Diego about seven years ago. They wanted to see how people behaved in their everyday life. So they recruited 200 people from Craigslist, and they asked them to wear a wearable camera and to wear that camera for a week. Now, if I was wearing a camera and I was in this study, who do you think would be part of the data set? All of you, yeah. So it's an outwardly facing camera that hangs on a lanyard around their neck. And at the end of the week, it was about 32,000 images. And it was images of the people that they had been in contact. But you wouldn't have had the ability to consent to that. So that's kind of an interesting shift. And the Institutional Review Board here didn't know what to do with this because you're technically not a subject in the study. I agree to be in the study, so I can choose to wear it, but what are your rights? And so these are some of the new kinds of questions that come up. But this is a precedent for precision medicine. So if we can tell when you're active, when you're sedentary, and you have a goal of more physical activity, and we know where you are, and in this study, they actually also used a GPS and an accelerometer so that they could triangulate all of that information and figure out, okay, now we know what your patterns are. If we just nudge you, maybe you can achieve your goals. So it was just, you know, it, it's really interesting to think about how these tools can be used to objectively measure everyday behavior. And so it's, it's again, an alternative to self-report. This is a sensor that was made by Todd Coleman in our bioengineering department. So this is a little sticker that you put on your skin. It's about an inch by an inch and a half. It has temperature gauges, strain gauges, ECG sensors. It's, it uh, powers itself. Um, and it transmits wirelessly to your provider. So this is your physiological data being sent directly to a provider or to a researcher. The other me- method that I was talking about is um, social media methods. So we have researchers now that are recruiting on Facebook. They're delivering interventions on Facebook. We just did a study that's in production right now to look at how the NIH has been funding research over the last seven years. Um, In this case, we wanted to see how much are they funding research that is with social media platforms. And it's very, very small, but it was really interesting because the research is targeting underserved and hard-to-reach populations. And so it was a lot of young adults, adolescents, and... Um, the LGBTQ population. So they're able to use these platforms to reach people that otherwise they wouldn't have involved in the research and then solve some really important health issues. So it's really been remarkable how these kinds of tools are being used and leveraged. These commercial products that you know I'm wearing right now didn't exist when we first started to do this research. And what was so interesting is... When they first came out, the researchers really wanted to use them. Like, can we use Fitbit to promote healthy, you know, physical activity? And so in one case, there was a study that was being proposed at the VA that took two years to get approved. And that was because these terms and conditions that we never read, and if we did, we probably wouldn't understand them, um, they conflict directly with our federal regulations to protect research subjects. So our federal regulations prohibit a researcher from um, not allowing you to file a claim if you're injured. 
in Fitbit's terms of service, they say that you waive your rights to filing any claims if you're harmed. And so the All of Us Research Program, which started about three years ago and has a goal of recruiting and enrolling a million people, they had a partnership with Fitbit, and Fitbit was going to donate 10,000 Fitbits. And it wasn't until August when Fitbit came out with the terms of service for researchers that the All of Us Research Program was able to work with them because of that conflict. So the new methods of data collection produce new types of data. So in the one um, right here is, is the wearable camera, and this is an image of what you might see. So if you were doing a study on eating and you wanted to see what people were eating, you could ask them to fill out a, a diary report, a food diary report, and then you could hope that they're telling you the truth. Now with this camera, if the person writes down, oh, I just had a small piece of fish and a side of peas, and you see they have a chimichanga, and it's like not correlating with what they're telling you and what they're actually doing, this is a way of getting some objective data. Um, the GPS tracking device that they were using was something worn on a belt. And then you can see that this individual was going back and forth over the, over the border. Uh, you can see everywhere they go. And with the GPS data, it's time-stamped and you have the coordinates. So you know everything about somebody's pattern. So what was interesting is when the IRB reviewed these studies, we did a study to see what IRBs were concerned about. They weren't concerned at all about GPS. And that was concerning because it's incredibly sensitive granular data. So part of our research has been looking at the disconnect between our existing ethics review process and the research that's taking place because either the IRB is going to overprotect and keep you away from studies that could be important health studies or they're going to completely miss risks because they don't understand the technology well enough. So we're working on bridging that gap. And then smartphone data, again, it's just tons of data that are able to indicate what people are doing in their everyday life. And with the social media data, um, I think it was James Fowler not too long ago that was able to identify whether you were going to be obese based on three of your friends on Facebook. Yeah. So basically, people can be monitored or intervened with 24-7 in real time. The research isn't happening only at academic organizations any longer. Industry is involved, whereas... whereas um, you know, when I started doing this research, the, the industry that was making the tools, were, they were making the tools. They weren't doing the research. So when Google opened up Verily, which is their mental health research arm, that was kind of a, a new big deal. And now it's everybody is involved in, in doing research, whether it's Apple or Microsoft research. So um, the interesting part of that is that they're not regulated the same way. So those of us in an academic research organization that accept federal funding to do research, we're obligated to follow the common rule, which is the federal regulations for human research protections. But if you're an industry and you don't accept that kind of money, you don't have the same regulations. The only way you would have an IRB review your research is if you wanted to go through the FDA to get a product approved. Otherwise, the research has no, they have no reason to have an ethics review because they're not required to. Um, so we have a lot of information. We can know everything. We cannot promise 
anonymity anymore. And in fact, I don't think we can promise de-identification anymore. Um, and as I mentioned, it's, it's variable in terms of its, its, the regulatory environment. So this, I was, a, I was a speaker on a webinar for introduction to digital medicine last month. And one of the people on that call was from a company called Evidation Health. And he said, a rule of thumb for re-identification risk of wearable data, six days of step counts are enough to uniquely identify you among 100 million other people. So when I hear people say, hey, it's just my steps, I don't care about who knows how many steps I take. But then when you think about Fitbit being bought by Google and then access to your health record, that's a whole different story. So now they know who you are and it's all connected with your health data. This was a study that was done at Dartmouth. Um, They were really concerned about college age suicide. It was really a year where that was prevalent and this was back in 2014. So one of the computer scientists there created um, an app. He asked his students to download the app on their phones. And this did have IRB approval, which was curious to me, because typically a professor asking the students to download an app so he could track them for the quarter would be unusual. But that's what he did. So they downloaded this app. And it had an accelerometer, a microphone, a light sensor, GPS, Bluetooth. Periodically, he would send them a survey, this ecological momentary assessment that I mentioned earlier, online so that they could answer a quick survey about their mood. From all of this, he was able to look at stress, mood, social um, activity, exercise, behavior, and classify that, put it all into this cloud, and then analyze their mental health, academic performance, um, just everything about, they wanted to see what was the climate at Dartmouth over the course of one quarter with these students. So he could tell when they were going to the gym, when they were um, sleeping, didn't have to ask them when they went to class because the GPS showed whether that student was in class. So, I mean, and then the, the, so it was an interesting study, and I think it was done for, for good reason. The weird thing, though, was that they published all of the data open access online on the website. So although open access and data sharing is becoming something that we do, these students didn't consent to having their data shared like that, and you can actually tell who the student was based on where they were sleeping. You can see that in the GPS. So it was just some of the things that I think people may not have known to think about um, were interesting with this study. And as I mentioned, we were asking, what do we do when the IRB says no? And one of the person that I was working with who was using the accelerometer and the GPS device and the wearable camera just wanted to do observational research. She just wanted to see how do these tools objectively capture what everybody's doing every day. But the IRB said no because of the possibility of you being captured in the data record. So that's when we started to do research. And what we wanted to do is ask the people involved How might we shape ethical practices together? And so we started working with the people that were making the technologies, participants. 
We wanted to ask participants, how did we do on protecting you? Did all the things that we set in place for you to wear a camera and all these other devices, were they meaningful? Did it help? And it was interesting because the IRB thought, oh, we're going to need to tell them what to do if somebody asks them a question about the camera. We're going to need to remind them to use the privacy button when they're in the bathroom. We're going to need to do all of these things. And the the participants said it just didn't matter. You know, if I was in a place where I didn't want my camera to be on, I would stick it in my shirt. I didn't I, I forgot there was a privacy button on it. I mean, it was it was really interesting. Um, And that way, by talking to participants, we can then inform policy and help people understand, especially ethics review boards, what they need to think about when when assessing risk. We've also been engaging researchers because they're really responsible for understanding how the technology works, what kind of data are produced, where it should be stored. In the case of of Dr. Kerr's research, you know, I mentioned that there were 30,000 images average in a week's data collection, there's also enormous amounts of GPS data, and the IRB had no requirements for how that should be stored and secured. In fact, at one point, they said, we want you to blur everybody's face that isn't the subject. Well, the technology wasn't around to make that easy. In one case, and this happened at Georgia Tech, they outsourced that job to Mechanical Turk, which is crowdsourced labor, to go through and erase people's faces. So that actually elevated the risk rather than reduced the risk because they had to send it unsecured to people that they didn't know. So as we've been doing this research, we, we, I mentioned we wanted to look at what IRBs were doing, what they thought was risky. So we've been analyzing protocols and decision letters that have been related to digital health research. Um, we've done focus groups with institutional review boards to figure out what they're having trouble with. We've, we've surveyed participants. Um, we've looked at different cultures to find out whether or not some of these technologies are acceptable versus not and with, with who. We looked at terms and conditions to see whether or not they were even readable, which they're not. And especially in this case, we looked at apps that were designed for kids and whether or not, you know, these terms of service put the children at risk. Um, Most of them are written for around a 16 to 17th grade level. And then, as I mentioned, we've been looking at the NIH reporter to better understand what the NIH is funding. And the first study that we did, which was published in Nature Digital Medicine, um, showed that it had increased by 384% the majority being on physical activity, substance abuse, um, and on disease management. So those are just a few of the studies that we've been doing. Again, trying to get more of the community involved collectively in helping to shape um, ethical standards. And this is one that I kind of alluded to earlier um, about the kinematics in, in your typing. So something I thought was really brilliant. Have you heard of Coursera? So the people that developed Coursera developed an authentication process, which means that they can tell who you are when you're taking their course. And so they make courses free, but in order for you to take their course and get credit for it, you have to prove who you are, and it's your typing that is your signature. Well, they've figured out how to tell if you have Parkinson's from your typing. 
And I was interviewed for this article last year. Your computer may know you have Parkinson's, shall it tell you? So, I mean, these are the kind of things that are starting to um, take place now. And a paper that we recently published in um, Psychiatry in the Digital Age was on artificial intelligence being used for mental health diagnosis and mental illness. And so my colleague Sarah Graham and uh, others from Dr. Jesty's lab have been really thinking carefully about, okay, so artificial intelligence can be used to do a better job at identifying breast cancer in in, um, x-rays, but should it be used in mental health diagnosis? And I think there's, we have a long way to go before that's going to really be a good thing to do. Um, so in terms of just summarizing the ethical, legal, and social implications, we have some pretty significant problems with data literacy, with research literacy, um, technology literacy, that all influence informed consent. And so right now, whether or not consent is informed is probably going to take a lot of work. Um, and we also have bystanders to consider. And we don't really know if how we're assessing risks is accurate, but we also can't always tell whether or not the benefit is sound. We have a real upheaval in our legal and regulatory space. Um, the Office of Human Research Protections updated their rules, but they didn't update them with knowledge about this new sector. So they don't really help at all. We did a study looking at whether or not IRBs had any public-facing guidance, and they don't. We also don't know what to expect downstream. There are a lot of unknown unknowns, and we need to learn more about privacy and and what people's expectations are and what they're willing to trade it for. And we did a study looking at young adults and people over 65, and those that have been digital natives feel completely different about their privacy. They're willing to trade it. Um, The older adults weren't. They felt they had control, and they were very cautious about what they were going to give away and wanted to weigh heavily what they would get back. So whereas a younger adult might trade um, $5 to have their face scanned for Google's facial recognition software, the older adults were not likely to do that. And so I think that this is really important from a design perspective is that we really need to understand who these tools are used for. Um, And I mentioned beyond the regulated research, there is research happening basically through these apps that are available for people anywhere to download, they oftentimes, as I was mentioning, the, the health, um, digital health is the health and wellness space. This is what this um, app that is very, very popular falls under. So they, they claim that they can help you and they, they give you guided meditation. And then in their terms of conditions, they say, we're not a healthcare or medical device provider, nor should our products be considered medical advice. Um, and again, these, these are rarely read. And then they talk about how they make no claims or representation that their products provide a therapeutic benefit. So they they market themselves as doing something, but their, their disclaimer is in their terms of service, saying that they really have no guarantees to that. I mentioned um, Facebook and their ability to flag suicidality. So this is a work from John Torres over at um, Harvard. What they're doing is looking at your Facebook posts, running a classifier through it, having an algorithm flag, and then deploying somebody to your home 
And is that what people want? And does Facebook have any obligation to tell us how that algorithm works? And they don't. You know, so they don't share information to make it visible or transparent or accountable. So these are the kinds of things that are, are being discussed a lot. This was really interesting for me. Um, there is a, an organization called the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA. They fund a lot of really interesting, innovative work, and it's a government organization. And there was a, a CEO of General Electric, I believe, whose wife died of pancreatic cancer. And he wanted to cure that disease. He says, nobody should be dying of pancreatic cancer. This is just crazy. So he wanted to form an organization called HARPA, which would be just like DARPA, only for health, which sounds like a great idea. But over the summer, if you guys remember, we had a lot of mass murders, right? There was some theater kill. I mean, there were some st- things going on that were heavily publicized. All of a sudden, the goal of HARPA was to focus on mental illness and mass shootings. So they were going to use all of the different digital footprints that we leave to figure out whether we have a mental illness, and then they were going to solve the problem of mass shooting when there wasn't any correlation with that to begin with. So when I read this in the news, I just thought, this is getting a little crazy. This is what I was mentioning to you where... This is just a couple months ago that Google was paying people with dark skin to scan their image so that they could improve their facial recognition and make it so that darker people were included. So it's getting a little crazy. Any of you read the book Bad Blood or watch the Theranos Netflix show? So nobody wants to be the next Theranos, right? And we have a lot of companies that may be the next Theranos. We don't know. We had Ubiome get raided, and they're gone. Um, So these are companies. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. But what, what I'm suggesting here, that if we don't integrate ethics into the design of these programs and products, somebody's going to get hurt. And, you know, you think about artificial intelligence and you use it to make your airline reservation, and if something goes bad, maybe you get a ticket that isn't what you wanted. Well, when it comes to health, that's a whole different game. So I think we need to really think about who are these companies, what are they claiming to do, and then as consumers, what is our responsibility to vet these things before we choose to use them? And now to the, to the work that I've been doing with um, Dr. Jesty's group. Um, what we wanted to do with, the, this is a artificial intelligence to promote healthy aging. And one of the things that is really interesting about technology and healthy aging is that engineers oftentimes don't talk to older adults about what they need. And so with this opportunity, with the, with the group that we're working with, um, we asked them if they would be willing to be in focus groups and do interviews so that we could better understand their thinking around technology. And that way, you know, when we talk about co-designing, it's, we, we ask them what they need, what they want, then we try to develop something that looks like it resembles what they said they wanted and needed, and then they tell us that they like it or don't like it or how they use it, what, what's going to go on there. So we, it's an iterative process, and so that's what we're doing right now. So we asked them about technology and personal health. 
We asked them about barriers and facilitators to adoption, and we asked them if they would be willing to be involved in co-design of these technologies. So the facilitators were that they really wanted technology to help them be more physically independent. Um, They wanted easy access to control the different aspects of their lives. What was motivating to them was that it provided an avenue for them to communicate with their friends that would alleviate loneliness. And they also wanted products that were easy to use. There were so many complaints about the remote control. Like, they wanted three buttons, not 80. And so that was like, and oftentimes they would tell us that they wanted a product that they already had, but they just didn't even know that that's what it did. Um, And I was there with two engineering students, two undergrads that I took with me to do these focus groups. They had never been exposed to older adults and came away from that saying, why is this not part of what we're required to do in our coursework? That was really impactful to be able to listen and hear and understand the frustrations. Um, You know, everything that they said, it's like if I didn't have my grandchild to show me how to use my phone, I wouldn't know what to do with it. And yet my kids get me the phone thinking that's all I need, but I don't know how to use it. Um, And then there aren't commonalities across the different technologies, so that's really frustrating. They also um, wanted access to resources to learn about new technologies. And they were asking, is UCSD training more people like these students who can help us? Well, they're not. They're training more apps that are supposed to help you. So data management was a big concern. They wanted to have access and understanding of their personal health data. Um, They wanted us to be able to give them back information that showed how they compared to themselves over time because they're in a five-year longitudinal study that is quarterly. It's three times a year they get measured for cognitive health, mental health, and physical health. So they want information back about them And how do we give it back to them in a way that's going to be meaningful? So we've been asking them those questions. What would you want back and how would it look? Um, There is a knowledge gap between engineers and older adults, and that really impacts adoption. There was widespread enthusiasm about wanting to participate in co-design. They say you can't build it without us because of our lived experience. You will not know what we need unless you come and watch how we live our lives. They were worried about the lack of technical knowledge. They were very motivated by having access to health data and their reminders. And their lived experiences are incredibly valuable and they want to be paid, which I think is an a demonstration of respect. I think that we should try to figure out how to build that into our budgets. So this is just a bad image of a smart home. Um, It's an example of how we're thinking about facilitating aging in place. But the way we're approaching it is trying, like this is an example of, of a smart home that is designed to alleviate a problem with hydration or dehydration. And the system is designed to be able to monitor a person's daily fluid intake. And so the detectors that are built into the home are able to recognize drinking activity. It logs the number of times that drinking happens throughout the day. Um, If the person's not drinking enough, the system prompts the individual to drink more. 
And if ignored, the system sends an alarm to the caregiver. And if the caregiver is not responsive, the the system can um, direct information directly to the physician. So this is just one example of the type of pervasive sensors that can be installed in somebody's home. And what we want to do is figure out how do do we do that in a way that's safe and responsible and that is um, in keeping with that person's preferences around privacy. We want to know where the data flow is going, who has access to it. So we've created, as part of our, our research, a framework and a checklist. And this was, this again, was another um, iterative design where we started with focus groups with, with key stakeholders, and then we worked with behavioral scientists to figure out did they think about these things in their last study that they designed? And so when they went through it on their own to tell us what they needed to think about or what they did think about, that helped inform what we ended up with as these domains. And so the key domains are at the core, it's ethical principles. But then we're also creating questions to help people think through what are the risks and benefits How is data being managed? Is it accessible and useful? And how is privacy being thought through? So this is something that we're working with researchers to implement into their workflow. We're developing a version of this for institutional review boards. We're developing a version of this for for people so that when you want to download an app or buy a device, you can look through what should I be asking myself before I make this choice. way too many questions to, to show up here on the screen, but the, we're really thinking about how do these different domains intersect with the ethical principles that guide uh, practice. So an example of what we did with the community that we're working with is two things that they told us that they really wanted. One of them was, was something that we wanted to do, and that was to figure out how to redesign informed consent. How many of you have ever read a consent form? Okay, gosh, a lot of you. Well, they're not designed very well. I don't know about you, but they, they're not far away from terms and conditions. So there's a lot of language on white paper with small margins, and yeah, it has a stamp that says the IRB approved it, but it's not, it's, not, it's not nice to look at that. So we asked them, what, it, what would a consent process look like if it was designed for you? And so it, it's really fun because the folks that were working with us were retired educators. And it was like they got their red pen out and they were circling things. Oh, I don't know what this word is and I don't like how this looks. Anyway, they came up with a really great idea for how we could present information. So they wanted, instead of just a lot of words on paper, they wanted to know what the sections were that they were going to be reading, like a table of contents. They also wanted to be able to make the words bigger if they can't see the font size, they wanted a scroll bar that made it bigger. They wanted to be able to click on a word that they didn't understand so that they could know what that meant. They wanted a video to show what they would actually be doing. In one case, it's a, it's a walk test, so they wanted to see a video of what is somebody doing when they actually do that test so I can know whether or not I can do it. Um, so this, was, this is an experiment that we've started with um, the group that we're working with but we're deploying it on the American Gut Project. And so we're working with the American Gut Project now to create um, a consent process for their online, uh, basically it's a crowdsourced 
type of science on, on the microbiome. The other thing that the, the folks told us that was really important for them, if they were going to be in a study that had a lot of sensor technology knowledge of them over time is that they want information back about themselves. But in academic research, it's not traditional to give people back information from a research study. We publish results, but we rarely ever give people back information about themselves. And so they said that was critical to their engagement with this study. They wanted to know what we were learning. So we took two manuscripts that were published, and then we took two... Um, public re uh, release announcements. And then we, t we asked them, how do, do you want to read these manuscripts? No, no, we don't want to read those manuscripts. That was way too complicated, burdensome. They, they liked the press release, but they still wanted something simpler. And so my student, Chenzi, who is really gifted when it comes to you know, making things look visually appealing, put together this infographic. And it talks about a study that they were actually in and what we learned and what our next steps are. And so we took this to them, and they said they sort of liked it, but it wasn't quite there. So now we're working on the next version of what, what's it going to look like. But that's how we go about doing this work, is that it's back and forth, and, and it takes quite a bit of time, but it's incredibly rewarding because I think we're making a difference. Um, these are some of the publications. That we call this return of value. So when you have the amount of data that are being collected in these kinds of studies. I think of it as we can return data or we can return information or we can return value. And so some people want raw data. Some people want that level and control of data. Some people just want to know, how did I compare to myself from the last measurement? How do I compare to other people my age? Um, what is declining? If, if, am I more likely to fall down now than I was six months ago? So these are the kinds of things that we're, we're also working on. How do you return value and engage participants as partners authentically, like really involve them not as a token advisor, but really engage them and, and benefit from what we can learn on giving back information. So resources, what we have been developing. We had funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, as I mentioned, our goal was to start bringing the different people in the digital health sector together. And so um, one of the things that was happening after our experience trying to get IRB approval for the wearable camera and the GPS and the different wearables, um, we wanted to share what we learned with others who were doing this kind of research so that they didn't have to go down the same path. In many cases, it took eight to nine months to get IRB approval for these studies because they're so new. So what we thought about was how do we share information with the entire community so that if a researcher at Harvard gets approval to use a device with Hispanic adolescents, then we can create a place for him to deposit that protocol so that other people can borrow from it. And so what we've created is basically a learning community where people are sharing what they have learned, what mistakes they're making, what's working, what isn't working. And then we have a forum where people can ask questions and, and share their expertise with the community. So this is something that we have... Um, 
I mentioned a resource library where we store protocols, the forum where people ask and answer questions. So this is a really um, organic and growing community. And it wouldn't happen without amazing people that we've had on our team over the years. It's just in, so many great students. Um, we have representation from industry, from the Professional Association for Human Research Protections, researchers across many disciplines. And it, it's, what, it's what is making working in this space so rewarding is because I'm able to work with computer scientists, engineers, um, people in the humanities, people in medicine, and it's really bringing all of these different disciplines together. And I'm, it's really a fun opportunity to learn. So with that, I think I am close to having about 10 minutes left. Um, and I'll stop now, and, and we can have questions and answers. So thank you. I think that's a great question. So the question is, with all of these data, how do you make ethical decisions about what you're learning and what you return to people? So in the first case, um, we've had that conversation in our research group about we will know that somebody is more prone to falling down, and should we tell them? So in an observational study, and when we have actual ways of intervening to prevent falls, there are actual programs in place that are falls prevention programs. Do we have an ethical obligation to provide that information to the community? Um, how do we provide it? So these are questions that we will study, and we need as a research group to figure out what is our approach to that. The second one about driving, there is a um, there are studies right now where the investigator can tell when somebody is becoming of diminished capacity and may not be capable of driving. I believe there are some mandated reporting in that space. Um, the person that's running the study is an MD, so I would need to check with her to see how she's doing that. But in the consent form, if you stood a chance of having your license suspended because of data that are collected as part of the research, you would be required to tell that person in advance of them joining the study that that could happen. I think that's very possible. When, when I think about the, the studies that we were doing with the wearable camera, so, you know, with an accelerometer, I could be wearing the camera, consenting to the study, and I drive from work to a bar and I have a couple beers, which I don't do, but imagine I did. And then I get into my car and I'm still wearing the camera and I hit somebody because I'm texting. So all of that's evidence, right, that can be, um, it, it can be given, like in the consent form for these studies, I don't believe this one had it, but you can have a, a certificate of confidentiality that protects the data, but you also have to tell people when you have to report. So if you observe in that data set six months later, because you may not look at it for six months, that there has been an elder abuse or some kind of child abuse, you're mandated to, to tell that you've seen this. And so, again, right now, we, we put that in the consent form. Um, whether people understand it or, you know, digest it, it's really difficult. And the data are really abstract. And so one of my colleagues um, was trying to explain to a young girl in in a study that they were doing in West Africa, how the GPS would keep track of every single move she made. And she showed her what the traces looked like of somebody else. 
and, and it was so abstract, the, the young woman could not understand that that's, that meant she could be tracked. And so when she came back to the research study and gave the GPS device, the researcher says, well, I see you go to the market every night. Why do you go to the market? And she said, I don't go to the market. I, I never go to the market. And she said, but it looks like you're going to the market every night because that's where the market is. And turns out she was selling water at the market, but she wasn't supposed to be there. And so that whole idea that we, you know, consent be informed is really hard to do when we have low data literacy, low tech literacy. So in order to mitigate that, we actually need to do the research with people and educate. So that's part of what the the folks that we're working with on the AI and healthy aging study are saying. They really want to be more literate. And that's, I think, something we need to strive for. Thanks. I, well, we did do that study. And so the, the question is, are there generational differences in privacy expectations? And there are, with the digital natives being much more open, um, willing to trade for less, and thinking that they don't have anything to lose. And I think you know the reason I put up the slide about being identifiable after six days of steps, and that data can then be merged with other really sensitive data, I don't think we've seen what happens then. But with the older adults they, that we worked with, they really felt that they had control over their data, very concerned about financial and health data being compromised. Um, and they felt like they could get hoodwinked, was the word that was used. They don't understand the technology well enough to trust the vendor. We did a study over the summer, and this was part of the um, Stein Institute's uh, mentoring program. We had a high school student working with us, and he looked at the apps that were marketed to seniors. And then he looked to see whether or not they had privacy policies that were protective or potentially abusive. And the, the apps that are being marketed to seniors are, there were like 103 that we found and none of them had been vetted. They were really trying to get people into retirement communities. It was just a, the strangest thing. So you really have to be careful and, and read through what you're, what you're getting yourself into. There are some really interesting papers about the um, cost of data storage and the drain that it's having on our energy sources. That is a huge ethical question that people aren't thinking about right now. But how do, well, in our case, they, you know, we, they were storing the data at the supercomputer center, but there's the, the amount of data is really going to have some potential climate effects. It's, it's really serious. I, I think I'm not concerned about AI being used for disease detection because I think in some cases it's more accurate and it's time, it's time saving. So in those cases where it's really been evaluated over time and found to be very valid, that's great. I'm more thinking about AI being used in mental health and we don't have enough data and and. We need to come up with solutions because mental health affects or mental illness affects one in five people. And it, it affects older adults. And the older adult population is at 12% now, and it's going to be at 24% by 2050. 
I mean, it's, it's a huge problem that we need to fix. And AI is going to have to be a solution for mental health, but we really need to be careful about how we go about doing that. The, the machine learning has to be with data that represent the people that the algorithm will be applied to. So it can't be fast. So you, you probably have heard the, the uh, go fast and break things. That's, I think, tech companies' motto. And we're kind of thinking, you know, let's go slow and fix things. And, and technology is moving pretty fast, but I think we really need to be careful when it comes to health. The kind of research that I do is funding changing for it. Is that? Yeah, I mean, the ease of getting it or how. Uh, it's really, really difficult. I can tell you that right now. The digital health space is something that the NIH is just becoming familiar with. So I've done those two papers to say you're funding this research, but you're not funding research on ethics about this research. The only ethics research that the NIH is mandated to do is genomics um, research ethics. So they have been the only agency funding it. So now I'm on the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine's working group planning a workshop that will take place in February in D.C. to look at this new landscape and to inform the NIH what they need to be funding. So that's a step in the right direction, but it may take a couple years before the funding actually gets put into place to fund the kind of work that I do. The next month, I'm on one of the panels for a NASM workshop on digital medicine. So two, two months in a row are on the topics that I'm talking about now. Um, and I'm glad I'm going, but I'm also worried that there isn't funding to support this work. And it's so necessary. The National Institutes of Mental Health is one of the primary funders. And when I proposed to them that we start building the infrastructure so that we can do this well, because most of those funds go to people that are very vulnerable, you know, people with mental illness, um, you know, they, they want to cure something before they develop the infrastructure. So I'm kind of stuck, but we have a give now on our website if any of you want to start donating to ethics research. So if there, um, with that, it's 7.18, so I think what I'd like to do is call it, call it a, a day for us, and thank you so much for, for listening and for your questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.